Developing the Leader Within is a podcast that focuses on leadership, management, and career development. We nosedive into the areas that are holding you back from your full potential. Let us begin. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Developing the Leader Within podcast. I'm Enrique, and today I am fortunate. Uh, My guest is Ron Mahaltra. He's an award-winning wealth planner, specialist, business advisor, speaker, author, uh, the last book, Impossible to Fail, and you see it right behind him. Uh, And uh, he has a podcast that he just launched, Legends, as well as a men's group, which I, I love. I've always been follower, uh, the successful male. And without a doubt, he has definitely allowed me to magnify my power. Uh, and, uh, and so today we're going to be talking about leadership and wealth management. Ron, thank you for being with me this day. Right, thank you so much for having me. And I have to start by saying I really appreciate how genuinely you support what I do. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. It makes it, it makes my job and makes my work so worthwhile when I have authentic people supporting it. So thank you very much for having me on. Oh, you're most welcome. We're going to be talking about leadership and wealth management, a topic that I think you are fully qualified to, uh, to go over. Uh, But as it relates to leaders, because leaders often do not take the time to think about wealth management. They they manage their money that's there in front of them, but there's a short-sightedness to their management that does not allow them to create the the type of generational wealth that you would like to see businessmen uh, leave as a legacy to their children or whoever they may leave it to uh, but the money game for leaders is short-sighted. Uh, that's just been my perspective, my analysis of it. Um, and I would like for you to uh, to address some of that. And we'll go in through different questions as we go. Yes. Um, look, when we talk about leadership, I think for me, a leader is somebody who wants to make a change. Somebody who has a vision and has the courage to drive the change. Now, what I have found is anytime you're trying to drive any type of change, whether it's at a community level, it's at an organizational level, it's at a country level, national or international level, you're going to need resources, right? Resources. And that's where, you know, I find that uh, a lot of people have amazing visions and they have an amazing strategy. But when you run out of resources, you have to shut up shop. You can't go very far. So I think anytime I talk about wealth, uh, I find that uh, a lot of people have, uh, they misunderstand what it actually means. And I think the word wealth has such a negative association in the minds of people that we automatically assume that wealth is self-serving. And it it partially is. I mean, you have to serve yourself before you can pour into others. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that your financial house is in order you have to make sure that your financial future is secured and the future of your family is secured. I mean, if you, if you don't do that, how are you going to go and make an impact? And I said, right. and so I've talked about wealth management for a number of years and it concerns me how people perceive it as a 
negative and arrogant and greedy endeavor mm. and fail to understand that uh, without resources, you're limited in the amount of impact that you can make. Right. So um, it's never really been talked about. This is the first podcast I've done where I'm talking about wealth in the context of leadership and why leadership leaders need to prioritize financial wealth. Um, but to me, creating wealth is the most financially responsible thing you can do. And, uh, but let's define what financial wealth is. I think a lot of misunderstanding probably happens because people don't realize what financial wealth is. Financial wealth is not about having lots of mansions and a fleet of Ferraris. Financial wealth is having the ability to be able to fund your vision and your lifestyle in a way that the money doesn't run out. Okay. So we all have a lifestyle, whether we holiday, whether we travel or we Whatever we do, we have a lifestyle. We want to be able to fund that lifestyle without ever running out of money. And we want to be able to fund our vision. And that's where leadership requires a prioritization of financial wealth so that there is enough resources for the leader to pursue their vision and not have to shut up shop prematurely because the money ran out. Yeah, that's a fabulous uh, description of what wealth is. Um it's amazing that this is the first podcast uh, that you cover uh, the the collaboration between you know leadership and wealth uh, because to me a true leader would always try to find ways in order to make sure that that resource does not end uh, and that's that is true wealth uh, how how do you tap into something that perpetuates uh an internal economy, right? Your, your own internal uh, economy and, and way of supporting your vision and, and your ventures without the worry of it running out. And so I love the way you, you put that. Um, it, it's funny also that you mentioned that there's a misconception and I see, the, I see it um, in the way people talk about uh, money uh, as a limited resource, right? Uh, uh, versus how can they actually make that uh, a fountain uh, that never ends? Uh, so what would you say that is a leader's biggest challenge when it comes to wealth? Well, I think one of the reasons why it's so uncommon for people to talk about leadership and wealth in the same conversation is because leadership is largely perceived to be a selfless act, which it is in many respects. But we can't give what we don't have. And I can tell you, as somebody who runs companies, one of the companies that's in the uh, growth stage, we have to bring resources in so we can pay people properly. In fact, me and the other direct directors in the business are the last ones to get paid. We first make sure that the money comes in. We have to obviously pay for our liability, tax liability first. We make provisions for that. Then we make provisions for business expenses. We make provisions for everybody, all the team members that have contributed to the growth of the business. And if there's anything left, we take it. But it would be very irresponsible for us to not prioritize financial wealth in the business because it's not about us. We have to make sure that the business continues as its own entity. It continues its vision and its mission. And then the people who have contributed get compensated adequately so that they have the energy and time to be able to devote to this business growth. Mm 
So that's why I, I suspect that that's why it's a conversation that doesn't come up very often uh, in the mainstream. Uh, people, you know, lots of leadership literature today talks about uh, sacrifices and compromises that leaders have to make. And for sure, they do. But to me, prioritizing financial wealth is a responsibility. Uh, you, you can't run a business and in, 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 in the economic world, the success of your business is measured by its profitability. So, uh, so that's one part of it. Now, in the mainstream, if you take leaders out, there's a lot of negative um, associations with money and wealth. And there's a number of reasons for that. Partly it's because how we conditioned. There was an article in Forbes that said that uh, the bad guy in Hollywood is typically rich. This was a Forbes article, mm. right? And if you actually look at movies, you'll typically find that the, the good guy is typically uh, not wealthy right. or doesn't really care about wealth. And it's typically financially irresponsible, okay? Because he's perceived to be this person who cares about other people. So he doesn't want to care. He doesn't care about money. And the bad guy is typically the one that's got the money. So from the beginning, we are sort of conditioned to see, you know, we, 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 we sense this eek factor in having money. We feel like we don't want to be that bad guy who is selfish and arrogant and exploiting people with his financial wealth. We don't want to be that person. So we start to, without even realizing it, we start to subconsciously attach honor to financial struggle and we attach arrogance and selfishness to financial wealth. So part of that conditioning happens. Then, then the other part is the scarcity conditioning. The scarcity conditioning where without even realizing when we hear parents say things like money doesn't grow on trees, money is the root cause of all evil. I may not be rich, but at least I'm honest. When people say things like that, we hear them through our childhood. We end up seeing money as a very scarce commodity, even though reality is that trillions of dollars of new money is produced in the global economy and there's no scarcity of money. But there is scarcity in how we perceive money. So that scarcity then carries through in our adulthood. And we aim very low. You think about how a person goes about their career. They make a choice that they want security. They never think about aiming for abundance. Mm. Think about the mindset of a person who goes to university and gets a job and then looks for a job. They're typically seeking financial stability and security. They're not seeking financial confidence and financial abundance. We take people through our universities. We, pay, we, take, we take them through corporations. We teach them the skill of making money but we do not teach them the skill of keeping money and we do not teach them the skill of multiplying money. And why should you multiply money? It's very simple. This is why. Because longevity trends are telling us that the average person in the developed world is going to probably live into the late 80s and early 90s. So if the average person is going to retire at the age of 55, 60 or 65, how are they going to provide for themselves for the next 25 or 35 years if they have not accumulated sufficient financial resources. Nobody's even talking about it. And are we going to rely on governments? Well, we've already seen that governments are not necessarily very responsible when it comes to managing finances. A lot of governments are in deficit and debt. Right. Are we going to rely on family members? Well, family members themselves are struggling. We can't really rely on our children. So how are we going to fund our lifestyle of retirement? It's not a question that people are even asking themselves. And 
what amazes me is over the last four years when I have been sharing uh, content in regards to financial res uh, responsibility, the content that gets the least amount of engagement is always related to wealth and financial responsibility. It's like people don't want to face the truth, right? So it's been, yeah, it's been a bit frustrating because on one hand, you, you want to help people, but the moment you talk about wealth, people automatically assume that you're throwing it in their face or you're showing off your wealth, not realizing that I came from a background of no money at all. I was actually broke for right throughout my mid-20s. I struggled a lot financially. And so, you know, it's just the way society functions today. And I don't think we have the realization that currently globally, according to a report called the Global Shift in Wealth, there are about 15,500,000 individuals in the world that are considered to be millionaires. Now you look at that number and you say 15,500,000 millionaires in the world seems like a big number, but it really isn't. It's not even 1% of the world population. Not even 1% of the world population get to that point. So if there is a lot of money in the world, money is not important, but it allows us to afford everything that is important. And I'll get to that in a minute. Then why is it that less than 1% of people are ever able to accumulate enough to last them an entire lifetime. And what is so wrong in prioritizing financial wealth so that you don't end up dependent on somebody else? What is so wrong with that? I would have thought that that's the right thing to do. That's the responsible thing to do, but it doesn't seem to be that way when it comes to the public perception. So that's been an interesting journey for me because I'm constantly, I want people to be able to live a life of dignity and independence. Why? Because I have seen people in my family, my own parents. I've seen other people, uh, people in the family who have had to rely on other people at retirement. And I know what it does to them. I know what it does to their self-esteem. I know what it does to their spirit. It's not a nice place to be. So I take my experiences and I take my skills and I take my education and I take my knowledge that I have learned and I try and impart values and um, facts, I try, and, I try and expose facts so that people would take positive action to secure their financial future. Uh, and it's always met with some resistance, but I do find that slowly I find that some people are opening up to it and starting to realize that they don't want to end up like their parents. They don't want to end up like their friends. Uh, but largely, I think there's still a lot of work to be done because majority of people still resist the acquisition of wealth and they perceive the acquisition of wealth as a selfish and greedy endeavor. Yeah, I, I see that. Uh, I, I did a podcast with a, a businessman and he told me that he was a fourth generation businessman and the company his great grandfather started is still in his family. And it's been going for over 70 years, way farther than he was uh, his age. Uh, and I like that because the mentality was, how can I create something that could be passed down to my family, you know, generation 
after generation, it could be a viable source of income for them, that they don't have to run after other people and for support. Um, now, I'll tell you, I served 26 years in the Navy. When you mentioned government support, right? The, the, the pension system for the military was based on government support. What happens if the government flops? There goes that support. So what do you do to ensure that that support is not the only leg you're standing on? You have to be uh, deliberate and conscious about money in order for you not to fall to someone else's failure, because you mentioned it perfectly. Um, we see it all around us, especially with the last year that we've had uh, worldwide. Governments are crumbling uh, to, the, uh, to the time. A lot of people are scrambling just to make uh, ends meet. On, and that was before the pandemic, right? So the pandemic comes and it devastated them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've lost their homes. They lost their jobs. All the things that they were dependent on went away. And now they're in ruin trying to, you know, raise up from the ashes. Had they a wealth management mindset, which is what I want to talk about right now, because leaders are, we're not only, yes, humility, right? And I'm for it. Uh, if you've ever seen anything I've posted, I'm for humility. That I think it's the, my, my greatest um, treasure to have and to give is, is being humble. Um, but humble does not equate to uh, uh, when you talk about financial foolishness, <laughs> it, that that doesn't equate. Uh, and I love your example of the movie. You know, the movies, how, how they portray, because I, as you were saying, I was seeing it. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly how it's portrayed. That's exactly how it's uh, pushed out. And so you believe it because you're ingesting all of that and it becomes part of your biases. Um, uh, so how, as, as a leader, how do I start to change my mindset about wealth management and wealth itself with all these things bombarding me and uh, adding to my, you know, my perception of money? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it needs to start with people feeling that they have an obligation to create wealth. It has to start there. Most people don't feel like it's an obligation. Or most people feel like it's, it's, I mean, it, like we feel like it's an obligation for us to make a living. Right. We need, in the same way, we need to feel like creating wealth to secure our financial future is also an obligation on us. That's the first part. The second part is to value it. Human beings, what we tend to do is we tend to prioritize anything we value and we never find time or resources or energy for things we don't value. Right. And because majority of people don't value wealth simply because they don't understand wealth, and they don't understand where they're heading in their future, they don't prioritize it. They don't make time for it. And they don't make provisions for it. You can't just end up with wealth. You have to plan for it. Nobody ends up with wealth. And if you do end up with wealth, it's not going to stick around too long. You will as easily lose the money that you have got. So it starts with understanding wealth. It understands with feeling a sense of obligation to create it. 
It understand it starts with valuing it. Now you can't manage wealth if you haven't created wealth. First, you got to create wealth, and that means not just making money, keeping the money, and multiplying the money. And if you don't haven't been if you haven't been taught that skill, you either need to make yourself financially literate, or you need to get the assistance of an advisor who will hold you accountable, somebody trusted. But either way, you're going to need to prioritize it and put it as part of your plan. Once you've created wealth, you need to then protect it and preserve it, because wealth can be made, but it can be lost as well. And there are a number of risk management strategies that a person will need to equip equip themselves with to make sure that if the wealth is to grow, it's first protected and preserved. Otherwise, if you don't protect it, preserve it, and grow it, you will not have anything to manage. Yeah. And only when you have enough wealth, you can then. I mean, I try and get my clients to a point where their net worth, which is the sum of their total asset base, is something that they can live, they can live off the income of that asset base without ever having to sell down any assets, without any depletion of the capital value, so that the entire asset base can be passed on to the next generation. The reason is very simple. The reason why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is the rich prioritize intergenerational wealth. It is very difficult to build a multi-million dollar business within one generation. It's possible, but it's very difficult. Typically, when we see businesses that are have turnover of fifty million, hundred million, those have been built over two or three generations, as you mentioned in your example. So, when we don't do that for our children. and this is one of the fundamental differences between rich people and poor people rich people their children start where they finish the poor people and middle class their children start where they started there's a fundamental difference so that's i mean you think about it right i've had my parents my parents have had their parents their parents have had their parents their parents have had their parents we've had generations of people and a lot of those generations have labored and they've put in this blood sweat and tears into labor where is the wealth for it what happened to it and that's exactly what happens when you don't prioritize financial wealth your children have to start where you started and their children have to start where they started and the cycle continues and before you know it the wealth disparity starts to increase and we end up hating the wealthy people and we end up despising and resenting the wealthy people when they're the ones that have actually in many cases show this corrupt people who are wealthy but this corrupt people who are poor but largely a lot of wealthy people are also self-made who are responsible enough to create enough for the next generation and not just transfer financial wealth but transfer values and knowledge to them as well so that they could build on that that's not something that was taught to me i I I'm suspecting it's not something that was taught to you because majority of people have not been taught this by their parents or grandparents. So I learned this and I wanted to be the first multimillionaire in my family to break the cycle and I want my daughter to build from here. Right. Now when I talk about that to people people say but don't you think you're spoiling your daughter? No because I'm not just going to transfer wealth without transferring responsibility, knowledge and values. Now that will be stupid, right? But I'm raising her to understand that her responsibility is to put that wealth to good and positive use, to make that bigger, 
so that more people can share into it. You see, when you build something substantial, of course you reap the rewards, but others reap the rewards of that as well. I mean, after all, that's what corporations do. That people, Somebody built a corporation some time ago. It might be a multi-million dollar blue chip organization today, might be a Fortune 500 company today, but somewhere some, somebody started a business with a vision. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that business starting a business is the only way to create wealth. You, there are only two ways to create wealth. You can literally look at everything you have ever been taught about wealth creation and you can put it into one or two categories. Number one, people and systems working for you. Number two, money working for you. That's it. They're the only two ways to create wealth. Either you have people and systems working for you, which means you have built a business or you're building a business, or you have money working for you, which means you have investments. If you neither have people and systems working for you, nor do you have a plan to have money working for you, you are guaranteed to fail financially. It's a mathematical certainty. Make no mistakes. If, and if you look at the majority of people, what is their plan? They don't have a plan to have people and systems working for them. And they hardly have money working for them. So what are they doing? They are working for money. Right. Now, if that's your plan where you will work for money, what happens when the money stops? And it has to stop at some point. Right. Because at some point we will age. And not just that. You may not even get to choose. It may be that you are a victim of... I don't like to use the word victim, but you are made redundant. There is outsourcing and artificial trends and automation trends are going to continue. So what happens? So you might find yourself out of a job. So consider all the reasons why you may stop working. You're old. So your human capital is depleted. You just don't have the energy to do it. Two, you're forced out because of uh, involuntary redundancy. Three, outsourcing. Fourth, automation. Fifth, artificial intelligence. Sixth, your spouse is sick. You have to care for them. Seventh, your parents need care. You have to care for them. We've just identified seven reasons why you may not get to work for the rest of your life until the day you die. So when the income stops... If you have not accumulated some financial resources, what do you fall back on? To me, it's common sense. But what I'm, I'm absolutely astounded by is how uncommon common sense is when it comes to the area of money. It's astonishing. And what's concerning is that schools and universities and workplaces still do not teach this skill. Even today, 2021, right? So that's why I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to help people understand the psychology of wealth, the principles of wealth, the strategies of wealth, and the roadmap and the sequence to wealth. And I never expected to be rewarded or have a pat on the back for it but I didn't expect to be criticized and attacked for it either. So interesting world we live in. It is indeed. And, you know, Ron, just to, uh, just to make your point, and I'll use myself as an example, because it's the only life I've lived. 
um, you were mentioning things that we say. And as you were, as parents, right, to our children and uh, those that are not uh, wealth-minded, and I vividly remember telling my daughter that she's an adult, that she could not expect to, to start where I am. When you said that, I vividly remember me telling her, you, you can't expect to start where I am today, which is exactly why uh, you know, I wanted to discuss this in leadership. I teach leadership every single day. I'm teaching people how to be effective and efficient leaders at every role and at every stage in their career. Yet, in my house, I'm telling my daughter this, you know, and it's it's shameful, just just saying it, right? It's shameful, but I don't mind being truthful. Uh, uh, and so now I have to go back to my daughter <laughs> and correct that statement because I don't want her to start from scratch. That's not my purpose for her. I would have failed her as a father, you know, as the primary leader in my house, I would have failed her to set her up that way, you know? And so uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, thank you for bringing me back to that moment. No, um, thank you. And thank you for acknowledging it. But I, I do want to put a caveat there. We don't want to give our kids so much. We want to give our kids enough so they can do something, not so much that they can do nothing. But as I said to you, if the parents transfer values, I mean, for example, if you look at some of the intergenerational businesses that we see today, large companies that are being run by third, fourth, fifth generation, what you will find is that the people who started the business, they transferred not just the wealth, but they transferred responsibility, they transferred right. education and value. So you might, they might have built a $10 million company and a generation later, it might be 50 million. And then a second generation, later, it might be 100 million. And it might be a $300 million company. And that's what happens. It starts to compound. Of course, it's wrong to just give them the money. But I think it's also wrong to leave them without any money because, because of inflation, as the cost of living continues to go up, we already know how many young people cannot even afford to buy an apartment yeah. for their first home. Why would we want to make it so difficult? I mean, I know I had to do three jobs to save enough money to buy my first home that I bought, a very modest home, uh, you know, when I was in my early 20s, three jobs, I had no life. So I missed out on some things. You know, so I, I'm all for struggle. I'm all for striving. But I don't want that. I don't want my daughter to be working for people, kids today, whose parents left them, gave them a base. And so the only reason my daughter's working for them, let's assuming that she's got the same talent, same education, same skills, the only reason she's working for them and not getting a profit and just getting a salary is because her dad did not leave her a base, but her employer's dad did. 
So that makes it very difficult. And that's how the disparity increases. And that's what's happening today. I believe what's happening today is, well, the rich will always get richer because they understand compounding. They understand the value of intergenerational wealth. The poor are also getting richer because for the first time in the history of the world, people in South America, Africa, Asia have access to the internet, social media. They have access to things that they haven't had access to before. And so their standard of living is rising. But the middle class is going to get poorer because the middle class became addicted to the monthly salary and one source of income and no plan to keep and multiply that income. They're at the biggest risk. And that's the, they're the people that I'm speaking to on LinkedIn because chances are if you're on LinkedIn, chances are you're, you're middle class. You're somewhere in the middle. You're not really poor. You're not really wealthy. You're somewhere in the middle. They're the people that I'm trying to wake up. And that is a leadership responsibility, whether you're a mom or a dad or you're a, you're a business owner, whatever it is. That's your responsibility to make sure that you're self-sufficient. Um, you know, and I, I find it amazing that I, I have to even explain this because it's so like, to me, it's just so common sense that being self-sufficient is what responsible people do. Uh, you know, and I don't mean to be critical, but I understand if people don't have the right knowledge about it. I understand. But if you if you attack me for it, I mean, how bad would your mindset need to be around wealth and money that you've just made me the enemy when I'm really trying to support and enable you and show you the light when it comes to financial wealth? How what happened to you? How scarred are you about financial wealth? For you to come back at me like this and that's the question that i sometimes think about and i look at the conditioning that people have had and it's it's concerning and occasionally i also get called a scam which is an interesting one and so i said to people i remember one conversation i said so why am i a scam oh you're a scam you're just taking people's money so hang on let's just because I'm trying to understand why you're behaving this way. So the guy who came from no money and worked out how to make money and keep money and multiply money and now shows others to do it is a scam. But the people at university that you're learning from who've never kept and multiplied wealth, who are teaching you indirectly how to secure your financial future, they're not scams. So the guy who's actually done it and continues to do it and has deciphered the model for others to do it and wants others to do it is a scam, but the people who have never done it, they're not scams. Interesting. And I said, you don't question that? You don't question how you perceive people and how you perceive situations? So, but that's the education system as well. It practically doesn't teach you anything about financial literacy, just like it doesn't teach you about leadership. It doesn't teach you about mindset. It doesn't teach you about performance. It simply teaches you how to carry out a task for an income payment. And largely you see a lot of graduates and professionals growing up perceiving income to be something that they can't influence. I mean, how can people not realize that, the, that whatever income you make, it doesn't come from your employer, it comes through your employer. But what determines how much income you make is your skills, your problem-solving capability, your ability to add value, and how difficult it is to replace you. 
Now, here's the question. Don't you influence those things? Can't you increase your skills? Can't you solve more complex problems? Can't you add more value? And can't you make yourself irreplaceable because of your attitude? Of course you can. You can influence those things. But why does it occur to the average person that they can influence those things and therefore they can influence their income, which will then give them the option to be able to put money aside and have that money work for them to create financial wealth? The fact that this doesn't occur to the average person tells me how the education system does not educate, it indoctrinates. Where people literally have the blinkers on and they can think about, oh, I've got to get a job, I've got to get my degree and I've got to have an income and I've got to have a mortgage. But beyond that, they can't think. Again, I'm not being critical of the individual, but I'm being critical of the system that perpetuates this type of living and this type of mindset. And that's why my new book, which comes out at the end of this year, is called Indoctrinated. How the traditional education system perpetuates mediocrity, conformity, and indistinguishability. I make a case for why the education system will not teach you how to design the life and lifestyle that you truly want to live. It teaches you how to work for an income, but no more. And that's, the, that's what we're kind of challenging and trying to change out there. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear it every day from my son. Uh, now we homeschool, so the curriculum is uh, enhanced by our participation. And so we get to ingest our life learning into their education. Uh, often I hear them say, they don't teach that in that class. So, but, but we say, but we will teach it in this class <laughs> yeah, because uh, that knowledge has to be passed on. I, I am fully on board with uh, making sure that your children, and back to my daughter, I, I totally agree, right? She's just not going to get everything, right? but uh, she will get all the knowledge. They will allow her to pick up where I am and push it forward. Uh, and I'm totally on board with that. Um, and and it, it just took me back to that moment where I, I actually said that and it clicked like, yeah, that's exactly what we do. Um, and then back to your case about uh, not understanding how people don't understand, <laughs> they wouldn't understand, right? They wouldn't understand because they're in a system. Um, but it's it goes back to that the whole crab in the bucket, right? We uh, we we are we will allow you to get to the top of the bucket. So we uh, we wish you well, right? It's kind of we wish you well, but then you get to the top, and then we say, oh my goodness, they grab the grab the leg and pull you down because we don't wish you better, and that's the difference between uh, the mentality of. Uh, where you are and where you're going to promote your future, your children, all those generations. I don't just wish them well. I wish them better. And when you start wishing people better, you don't mind that they get out of the bucket because once they're out of the bucket, they may become reach down and grab you and get you out of the bucket. And that's the whole uh, premise of uh, this wealth management, wealth mindset that, and, and the reason why I wanted to have this episode and, and specifically with you, because I have seen uh, uh, your work uh, and, and I totally agree with your work. Um, so now let's say I'm a leader and, uh, and I've changed that mindset 
I, I'm, I'm fully on board. I'm, I'm good to go. Um, and uh, because you have to understand, they probably will meet the same resistance that you're seeing on your end. Um, how, how can I bring that to the people? Because uh, it's, it's going to be challenging. I think, I think you need to focus on your own plan. Like to start with, as I always say, before you pour into other people, you know, pour into yourself, you have a responsibility towards securing your financial future. And the minimum standard for me is to get to a point by the age of 65, 70, where you can replace 75% of your income without having to work for the rest of your life. Uh, that's the minimum standard for me for wealth creation. Then of course you can go beyond that if you wish, you know, there are levels. I mean, we look at most people kind of live at what we call financial scarcity. Some have financial survival, some have financial stability, some have financial security, some have financial confidence and some have financial abundance. There are levels, there are levels. It's like playing basketball at, you can play basketball by yourself. You can play basketball with a friend. You can have a friendly match with your friend's team and your team. You can have a competitive match. You can have a national trophy. You can have an international. There are levels, right? right? It's the same game, but the experience is very different. You see? The experience when you're playing for the NBA and when you're playing basketball by yourself, even though the game is the same, the experience is very different. Would you agree? So it all comes down to what kind of experience do you want for your life? And financial resources mobilize experiences that's how i look at it i want to live a whole life i want to have lots of diversity of experiences exposure to cultures building and creating things learning from the best mentors being able to afford the best education the best healthcare, the best lifestyle i like what man makes i like the technology man makes i like the watches the jewelry the cars i have no shame in and feeling guilt in saying, I want that. Because to me, it's a way of appreciating what another man has made. Right. Right. So we have to absolve ourselves of all the guilt and shame first. We don't need to prove ourselves to anybody. People are not going to get it. Okay. You're only going to attract financially motivated people. You've got to be financially motivated. Then I teach a sequence called the SISPIP model, S-I-S-P-I-P. And this is what I, do, I, I believe to be the most time-tested wealth creation sequence. The S in SISPIP stands for skills. You've got to have skills that are in demand, transferable, and high paid. Mm -hmm. Most skills that we learn from universities are not transferable, not in demand, and not high paid. Okay, so you've got to develop those type of skills. Once you have those skills, it allows you to influence the I, which is the income. For as long as your income is fixed, your opportunities and possibilities are fixed. Right. Fix the skill problem, you'll fix this income problem. Once you have the income problem fixed, you must have some savings. How much? Probably about six to 12 months worth of your income in short-term savings. That's the S in the SISPIP model. Then you've got the P, protection. Protect your income, protect your assets, protect your family. Make sure that everything that can go wrong is mitigated. I, invest prudently and well. Do not speculate. Buy good quality assets, 
hold on to them for the long term and continue to put money in as often as you can. And the P in SysPip is preserve what you have built by ensuring that there is a firewall around it and having estate plans so that it stays within the bloodline and it cannot go anywhere else through litigation, lawsuits, mm -hmm. or even let's just say my daughter marrying some douchebag and then splitting up and then my wealth ends up with this person. There are things you can do. And this is what wealthy people do really well, you see. They do, what they do is they not just, they don't just build, they plan for it. They build it, they protect it, and then they preserve it so that it stays within the bloodline. Well, the average person doesn't even build it. And when they do, they don't protect it, preserve it. So you hear those stories. Oh, I was doing very well. My investment was doing very well. And then, you know, I just lost everything. Oh, my business was doing really well. And then my partner ran away with the money. Well, hang on. Why did you not protect the risks? You don't just get into a business without legal contracts and clauses. You don't just buy investments and not safeguard yourself against things that can go wrong. You don't just build things without insurances. You don't, you know, you don't protect your, you've, I mean, if, if I look at, if you look at my plan, whether interest rates go up or markets crash or there's a natural disaster or we have, we don't have tenants for a little while, whatever, most things that can go wrong, I have mitigated in my plan. There are only a few things that I can't mitigate. Acts of war, I can't mitigate that. I have no control. Acts of God, I can't mitigate that. And long-term unemployment, to be honest with you, I have mitigated that in my situation because I have built the types of skills which allow me to make an income. But for a lot of people, that risk cannot be mitigated because they have not built transferable, high-value skills that are in high demand. But it's something we can do. The first thing we've got to realize is it can be done. It's not like it's, and especially today with access to internet and access to mentors and access to resources, the only thing, it's never a question of ability. It, it's a hundred percent question of willingness. Yeah. And, I, and I expose that in people. I say to them, so you say you can't, don't say you can't, say you won't. Let's be honest here. You won't. You don't want to put time in it. You don't want to put energy in it. You don't want to take the risk. Don't say you can't. Be honest. You won't. And if you won't, at some point, you will face the consequences of indecision. And I'm pretty fairly direct when I'm speaking to people like that. But the reason is not because I'm trying to offend them or make them uncomfortable, but because they need to confront reality at some point. And if they confront reality now and I make them uncomfortable momentarily, in the long term, they're not going to have to deal with that. It's either the pain of discipline or it's the pain of regret. Right? So, um, so that's what I would be doing. I and mean, if I was starting today and I, was, I had the right mindset, these are the things that I would be doing. I would literally sit down with the pen and paper and I would say, why do I value wealth creation? You must make sure that you truly value it. Because if you don't, as I've already explained, you will never prioritize it. So you really got to sit... This, this is what I would be doing today. If I didn't automatically and naturally value wealth, I would be writing down 50 reasons why I need to value wealth. Why? Because I'm trying to give myself emotional ammunition to remain motivated on my wealth creation journey. Right. So imagine if I have 50 reasons. I've got to 
I, I want to start a business. I want to support my family. I want to educate my niece. I want to look after my parents. I want to buy that car. I want to buy that home. I want to put my daughter in the right school. Put down 50 reasons. 50 reasons gives you a lot of ammunition. One reason won't, right? And you have to psychologically prime yourself to value it because if there is no emotional connection with the activity of wealth creation, you are not going to do it even if you have all the knowledge and information right there. You're not going to do it. Humans are not logical. We are predominantly irrational and emotional. So the first barrier is not lack of knowledge today. There's plenty of information and knowledge. The biggest barrier is our own psychology. And we have to understand that first. It's how we think about financial wealth. It's how we perceive it. It's how we value it. That has to change first. Information, getting advice and information is easy. Changing your own psychology, that's the hard part. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, Ron, uh, thank you so much for all that you've shared uh, with us today. Uh, It's enough for a lifetime, really. (laughs) It really is. Uh, And I hope that everyone listening, uh, you've heard uh, not only the information shared, but you've heard the the spirit behind what's being shared. It, I truly believe that it's irresponsible as a leader not to consider the impacts of poor wealth management mentality. Uh, it is irresponsible to our families and to those that may be working for us or with us. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for sharing all that you did. Um, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Um, thank you so much. I appreciate Enrique. I always blown away by your sincere interest in uh, what your guests do. So thank you. And thank you for endorsing my work as well. Uh, for people who would like to uh, know a little bit more about what we do and reach out to me on LinkedIn, which is where Enrique and I have been connected for quite some time. Uh, check me out on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram, the Ron Mohotra. Or I'm recently starting to put out tweets on Twitter as well. So there'll be the three platforms. That's what I love about social. We can stay connected. You can throw a question at me. If there's anything I said today that triggered you, just clap, ask me why, what I meant by that. I'm more than happy to support what I'm saying. Um, but also identify why you got triggered by it. You know, um, but uh, yeah, if, if this was of interest and if this, if you feel that what I said was relevant and meaningful, by all means, please connect and uh, and uh, would love to stay in touch. And thank you, Enrique, again, for being such a wonderful host. Thank you for being with us. And everybody, as we love to end our show, success to you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'd love to hear suggestions for our future shows or any remarks you may have that will help us improve. Until then, success to you.